0: We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and there was morning, the second day.
1: In this last week, we spent time in Genesis 1 with the creation of the heavens and the earth. And we read a bit of that this morning. Then we spent time in Genesis 2 with the creation of mankind. In Genesis 3 with the fall of mankind. And then in those middle chapters of Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, God's judgment upon sin with a flood and his covenant promise to save and then Genesis 11 with this interesting city, the interesting story of the building of the city of Babel and God's scattering of the people by confusing their language. I think the first 11 chapters of Genesis are some of the most compelling, moving chapters in the Bible. In these first chapters, the scene has been set. And what we have then is next week, we have Genesis 12. And the call of Abraham and the covenant promise to bring redemption through his seed. Uh, Many uh, theologians call that the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. We have this, this gospel preaching to Eve right in the middle of the curse. And then we have this gospel preaching to Abraham that through him, there is one who would establish a final people, But this morning, we consider the first words. Before we move any further into the story, we consider these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That's all we're going to look at this morning. Now, we're going to go to a couple of references throughout Scripture, but I hope you'll keep your Bible open. And even as I'm talking, I hope you'll glance down every once in a while and see that is a powerful reality worthy of reflection This morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that this reality that in the beginning, God, (laughs) it does not say in the beginning, Jeremiah. Lord God, you are worthy. You alone. You stand alone with your eternal power and divine nature. But I pray that this morning, your spirit and your great kindness, even the generosity and kindness that we see in creation has come to us also in redemption, that you've revealed yourself to us and that your spirit this morning would move in us to, to believe what is true in the beginning, God. I pray that you would be kind to us to gently but firmly, Lord, that you would remove ourselves from the center of our own universe. And that you would be situated where you actually are. And that our imaginations, our minds, our conception of reality would be transformed to what is real in the beginning. God, I pray that you would do this in these moments as we reflect upon your word. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. Only you can do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What do you think about God? And what do you what do you think? Like what what comes to your mind? What is in your imagination? What is in your conception? Some people call it worldview. How do you what is your God view? You know? What is your understanding of who he is? A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whatever it is that you imagine, whatever comes into your mind, whatever is your framework about God is the most important thing about you. Now, here's the question Will what you think about God be based in reality? Now, people think lots of things about God, right? Perhaps at various times during the course of your life, you've thought various things about God, and some of those things are mutually exclusive. Like you can't believe those two things. Perhaps you've moved from error to reality. Will what you believe about God, what you think about him, be based in reality, or will it be based in your imagination? These are really the only two options. Our vision at Crosspoint Coast is to preach the gospel and see Jesus inform and transform the whole of our lives. Jesus Jesus, the God who actually is informing and transforming our lives according to who he actually is in reality. What you believe about God shapes everything, not only about what you believe about God. What you believe about God shapes everything about who you actually are. The question is, will you be transformed by the God who is or will you be shaped by a God of your imagination? We've been talking about this in a number of different ways in recent weeks. Will you live in a fairyland of your own desires? Or will you live in what is actually real? There's... Uh, an interesting April Fool's joke many years ago that Google ran uh, this April Fool's joke. They advertised augmented reality device. They'd previously uh, printed a thing that you could cut out of a cardboard box, uh, uh, these cardboard glasses, and then put an Android phone on the other side, and it would serve as sort of this augmented reality device. And then they released this April Fool's joke in which they actually just remove the cardboard part and they just put up these plastic glasses. You can see it here. And here's the, here's the tag line. The odd thing about the Google Plastic is that it isn't, it, it's not actually augmented reality. There's no computer, there's no screen or anything. The device is just a small box of transparent plastic that you pull up and the sales pitch went something like this. What's realer than Real. I mean, how much more augmented can you be than to be augmented to see what actually is, right? I'm sure this just sold out right away. But the opening words of Scripture tell us something. They tell us that there is something realer than what our eyes actually see. There's actually something that we ought to put before our eyes that will give us access, not to some augmented artificial reality, but rather there is something that we ought to put before our eyes to see actual reality for what it is. And it begins right here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Explore with me a world that is greater than what we know without the revelation of Scripture a world that is actually real, a world that God sees and has told us about. The Scriptures are like God fits a sort of augmented reality lens on our eyes and immerses us in real reality. That is, the Scriptures give us this key insight that the world in which we live is not all of what actually is. So the Bible becomes the means by which we can truly know both what is around us and the God that made us. You see, apart from the scriptures, all that we can know is that which is around us. And so we could wear our Google plastic or whatever. But with the scriptures, we can know the God who made the world that is around us. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is there. And in it, he writes this Regardless of a man's system, he has to live in God's world. Regardless of how you conceive of the world, you cannot escape the fact that you live in the real world. The world that is, the world that is the the world that God created, the heavens and the earth sort of world. The only system that will ever actually make sense of the world is a system that begins with the words in the beginning, God. Ultimately, you don't get to define God. For this simple reason, He defined you. And there's no circular argument in creation. He defined. You. He tells you who he is. And he tells you who you are. And what is this world that you live in? Therefore, to know God is actually the most basic thing through which we know reality. The call this morning is is really to put on a lens. Yes, to put on a lens, to put on the lens of Scripture that we might see what is real. And this is where the story begins. Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to share with you three things that I think that this tells us about reality. When I was reflecting on this many years ago, I, I had down the words that this is what tells us that, that this tells us something about three things about God. But oh, it's 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 bigger than that in some ways. It's, it tells us something about God, and in telling us something about God, it tells us something about. All that is, all that God made, all that God has done, all that God intends, it tells us not only about creation, it also tells us about purpose and design, three things that Genesis 1-1 tells us about reality. The first thing, the story is about God. In the beginning, God. One of the most important things about the first pages of a book is that it introduces for us the main characters of the book, and this book has one main character, one main character. Every other character finds their meaning in relationship to that one main character, and that one main character is God. The first relationship that we have to that God is a relationship of creator to created. All of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them has this relationship to God created creature. He is our God. You may have heard it said that the Bible gives us an instruction book you may have conceived as the, of the Bible as an instruction book and sometimes when you hit hard times you know you grab a bible that you haven't really paid much attention to and then you open it up and you hope that somewhere on there will be instructions for it how to handle the situation that you find yourself in today i've done it i've done that right have you uh, the bible is an instruction book it's true but it's not a random list of sort of to-dos for life the bible is specifically the instructions of how we can know God. See, if the Bible is an instruction book for your life, then the Bible is about what? Like, you. (laughs) But it says, in the beginning, God. What the Bible gives us is instructions on how to live our lives, yes, but only if that means how to live our lives in light of the God who is The Bible gives us instructions on how to calibrate our lives to the fullness of reality, and that begins with God. How that reality begins and and revolves around God, our maker. The story isn't instructions or suggestions for life for you to take or to leave. It's one of the reasons why the sermons here at Cross Point Coast, they just don't tend to end with sort of three practical points of what to do for the next seven days, come ne- back next week, and I'll give you more instructions. It, it's just because I want to give attention to the Word, and the Word just doesn't really do that. The Word begins with, in the beginning, God. Our business is a business of coming to know revelation because the Bible is not ultimately advice. The Bible is news. News, announcement, heralding, declaration. Yes, there is a way that you ought to live in light of the news about reality, but the first thing that is needed is to come to know and to believe reality. That's why our vision is that we would be informed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would know reality, believe reality, understand reality, and then conform ourselves to reality. That is the first thing that is needed is, is actually faith. Faith encompasses all of this. A grounded, practical trust in what has been revealed about our God. We'll see what has been revealed more in is more than just dry information. It's not simple, like dry, disconnected doctrine or neutral news. It's actually good news. It's gospel news. What we'll see is that what is revealed is not just history. It is the history of our own redemption in God, our creator and redeemer. So we will celebrate what is revealed, will we not? I mean, that's the question. Is what we, dis- what we discover about God according to his word, will we celebrate it? Will we hold it up as great and worthy, not only of attention, but also to be conformed to, to affect our conception of reality? Will we, def- will we be defined by what we come to celebrate in the story of the scriptures? Genesis 1-1 shows us that the story is about God. But it also shows us that you can know God. Now, that's huge. Like you, creature, can actually know God. In fact, this verse shows us not only that you can know God, but that God himself actually wants you to know him. This doesn't have to exist. God's, God was under no external compulsion to, to, to need to give us a knowledge of what we are and who He is and the nature of creation. But He did. Not only can we know God, God wants us to know God such that He has revealed Himself to us. No one else was there in the beginning. We wouldn't know this about God if God had not told us, but He did tell us. Francis Schaeffer wrote in another book, he's there and he is not silent. He's the God who is there, and the God who is there has actually spoken. We do not celebrate at a, a, a God that we guess at. I mean, so many of the world religions are, are imaginative conceptions of a God that really isn't actually known. But this God, has made himself known. And he's not just made himself known. He's made himself known to us. And he's given us how it is that we are to respond to him. And so we don't even have to imagine, okay, now I know who he is. Let me imagine how I ought to celebrate them. He also gives us how we are to walk in light of who he is. So we know God because God has revealed himself to us. This is the self-revelation of God. During our recent time in Romans 1, we read these words. Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his, indiv- for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived, not just known, but actually seen, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So through creation, we can know two things about God. Like without divine revelation, this book, we can know two things about God. We can know his eternal power and his divine nature. But God has not only created all things. He's he's given us this creation to live in. God has also spoken into creation, So God has given us all these things that we might see these two things about God, his eternal power and his divine nature, but he has also then spoken into that creation that we might know even more, that what we know about God would not be mediated through creation, but personally known through revelation. Do you get that? Like, that's amazing, He isn't just the God who made everything, and we look around and say, hmm, I can really know a lot about this God by what he made through the mediation of nature. He actually stepped in to be personally known and spoke so that we could know him. We can know God because he's revealed himself. Job says this, Job 11, seven through nine. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the almighty? It's higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. The point is this. Even without revelation, we ought to confess that creation is the work of an eternal power. And we ought to confess that whoever made this surely is not like us. He is of a divine, not created nature. But it's in God's self-revelation that we know who God actually is. Who can measure the measure of the Almighty unless the Almighty tells us about the Almighty? We know God's perfect design for the universe. We don't just know the universe and see that it has a design. We have God's own words About the design. We know what has gone wrong with the universe in the fall. We know God's judgment. And we know God's mercy. We know God's covenant plan to redeem. Because he spoke it. And we know God's greatest self-revelation. We know the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, speaking of things that we don't have to know. We don't have to have God. Not only speaking, but with us. Jesus is himself the creator. Jesus is himself the plan of redemption. And so if you have seen this great generosity of Jesus Christ by his word, you've seen God. Not, not just how we tend to conceive, like God, and then you've seen Jesus. No, if you have seen Jesus, then you have seen the the in-the-beginning God. If you've seen Jesus, here's Colossians chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on heaven on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of the cross you see the blood of the cross was doing something with this in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth thing cuz jesus was doing that and we jesus is doing redemption the story is about god and you can actually know him you can both know who god is and you can know what god is doing Jesus is God. If you want to know the the in-the-beginning God, you know him by coming to know Jesus. Do you want to know what is real? Do you want to know reality? and Do you want to live a life grounded in what is real, not a fairyland imaginative life, but do you want your imagination, your conception of reality to be conformed to what is real? Know Jesus. We've seen the essential elements of this gospel play out already in our reading thus far in Genesis. God made all things good, right? I and mean, that's the story. The word good shows up over and over again in this first chapter. Mankind in, in, verse, in chapter 2 is the, the pinnacle of creation. Already in chapter 1 it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He gave mankind this privileged seat in creation. Yet by the time we get to Genesis 3, we have man, through the deception of Satan, questioning the authority of the creator. And what do Adam and Eve do? They fall into sin. And God reveals his judgment upon sin, and that judgment is death. Do you know that? you believe that? Do you live your life as though sin isn't like just something you can do sometimes and not do other times and try harder next time? But do you understand God's own self-revelation that, that sin actually has judgment and that judgment is death? It is a cosmic, deep reality, an offense against the Creator. And at the same time, God in the revelation of the curse, reveals also redemption. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In the following chapters, we see the degradation of mankind into sin. And we're like reading this, and I hope you're you're like me, and I'm reading the next couple chapters of Genesis. And I'm like, yeah, that's very familiar. We see God's judgment upon sin in the flood. And yet we have another sign of God's grace in the rainbow. And God is Taking the people that he's made who rebelled against him in sin, and and he's going to reconcile them to himself through the gospel. So ultimately, in Jesus, God has again shown himself to us and provided the means by which we can be reconciled to our Creator. This is the story that God is telling in this word. Friends, you can know God. But the greatest knowledge, I mean, it's amazing that you can actually know God, the God who actually is, not the God of your imagination, the God of your idolatrous desires, but the God who actually is. But you know, the greatest knowledge is not the knowledge that we possess about God. The greatest knowledge is that we are possessed by God. The greatest knowledge is not merely that we know God, but that we are known by God. I mean, do you know that? God knows you. In fact, there's an even greater knowledge than that. We have the greater knowledge that God has set his love on you. Now, in light of the story that I'm reading here, that's astounding. That's amazing. The holy God of the infinite, eternal, divine God has set his love on me. Now, that's knowledge. The story is about God, and you can know him. And you can know that he knows you by name. He is your maker. And by the gospel of Jesus Christ, he can become your redeemer. So you cannot just know the maker God and his design for the world that you've fallen short of, you can know reconciliation to that God. Genesis 1-1 shows us that the story is about God, and this, you can actually know God. The third thing that Genesis 1-1 tells us is that God alone is God. I know these are basic things. You're like, yeah, you know, like, kind of by definition, We don't live like that. Maybe we should, we spend our whole lives living like maybe I'm God. Maybe my desires are God. My entire culture tells me to follow my heart, not the the eternal and divine God. And so maybe for a moment we should reflect on something that ought to be obvious to us, but it's not by the way we live our lives. God alone is God. One of the first things a story does. Is to tell us not only the main characters, but also its setting. When did this happen? Where did it happen? Who was there? Well, the time in the beginning, the place, the heavens and the earth, like nothing, and then the heavens and the earth. And who was there? God. God alone. Is God. God was before both time, and God was before place. God is before the beginning, and he is outside of the heavens and the earth. God, infinite, eternal, God alone. A.W. Pink, again, so helpful. In the beginning, God. There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention, There were no angels to sing his praises. There was no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that, not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting, during a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, in need of nothing. God is literally great and majestic for an eternity and created. That's the setting. God alone is God. Everything else is not eternal power. Everything else is not divine nature. There's been many times that I've, I've thought about this, God, for eternity, and I've gotten physically dizzy thinking about it, like trying to imagine nothing but me. And I get nauseous, like actually sitting on my couch, because there is no such thing as nothing but me, there's like me and my couch at least, some air conditioning and four walls, and And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to imagine just being me. And it makes me nauseous. It gives me the same feeling that I get when I think of dangling just outside of the space station in space. Like, nothing but me, eternally falling into nothing. Friends, that's the sort of nightmare that you wake up from before you hit the bottom. I'm not made to be God. I'm not made to float in nothing but me. That's disorienting to me because I'm a creature, it turns out. I get dizzy when I think of this because I am not great. I am not majestic. I was not made to dangle outside and above the cosmos. But God was not made. God does not dangle. When you place me in nothing, I dangle and I float because I don't fill up nothing. Not enough. I'm not an eternal power. I'm not of a divine nature. But from eternity past, God was whole. God is full and did not dangle over nothingness because he was full in himself, in all of his own greatness and majesty. There's not God with space around him. There's just God Full and eternal, divine. You could say God was full of himself. Now you say that about a creature. You say that about a person. You say that about yourself and it's like an insult, right? You're full of yourself. Why is that an insult? Because you're neither great nor majestic. God is full of himself. It's part of what it means that he is holy. And that's not an insult. That's not pride. That's not arrogance. It's reality. Because God is, in the beginning, God, great and majestic, before creation himself, before and over creation himself. God alone is God because nothing is over him, nothing is above him, prior to him, or greater than him, and nothing comes after him to fill him up. He is God. Now, how does that make you feel? I mean, honestly, like, like check in on your body for a second. Say, hey, body, how do you feel about that? Let me just suggest that one of the things that should make you feel is not God. I know it does me, honestly. It makes me feel not God and, and actually utterly dependent utterly dependent upon him because the story is about God. You can know him because God alone is God and he's made himself known. So as we continue this story of redemption, I would have us just consider four things before we close this morning. Four implications on being caught up in a story that is not about us, Four implications of being caught up in a story that is actually about God. The first implication is this The story of God lifts us out of the mundane and the inconsequential. The story of God lifts us out of our story, lifts our story out of the mundane and the inconsequential because the story is not finally about us. The story is finally about God. It's not bounded by our lives, which are here today and gone tomorrow. We have a sense of that in ourselves. And the older we get, the more we feel like the gone tomorrow seems closer than the here today. And I'm beginning to wonder. It feels awfully inconsequential. I mean, graveyards are filled with gravestones with the names of people that in a matter of generation, not one Person knows, except the Maker. He sees it all. He made them. He knows them. And for those who called upon His name, He redeems them. Some may suggest that their lives are meaningless. No one knows, no one remembers, but God knows. And if the story is about God, and we can know God, and God alone is God, then all of a sudden my inconsequential and mundane life can be lifted up and made sense of. God's story, because he's revealed it to us, actually connects to our lives. Specifically, the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our lives and lifts our lives out of the mundane and the inconsequential. The story of God lifts our story out of the inconsequential and mundane. Secondly, the story of God lifts our story out of fear and anxiety. I've already shared with you one of the it's not just when I think about the space station or hear a rocket go off like I think I heard this morning, right? It's not just in those times that I feel deep fear and anxiety. I feel like, like everything is happening around me and, and I, I, I'm not enough. I, I don't know what to grab a hold of because even the things that I grab a hold of and try and hold on to and find a little bit of help from, they themselves are inconsequential and mundane. And I feel a great fear and a thrownness and anxiety, but we can know God. We can be confident that he is utterly in control. No, we are not in control. We in ourselves are floating, but he is in control, and he has told us what he is doing, and by an incredible grace and mercy, he's doing something with us if we'll trust him, if we'll place our faith in him, what he's doing is actually for our good. Therefore, do not be afraid. I told you that the Bible is not just a book of advice. The Bible is news. It's not advice I would recommend. Don't fear so much. No, I'm telling you there is a God He's actually in control, and it's not advice or recommendation for you to take or leave. Do not be afraid. Third, the story of God lifts our story out of self-importance. This is just as important, isn't it? God alone is God. I can try to make the whole universe revolve around me and my needs and my wants. I, I can do that. I do. I do do that. But I'm an awfully small particle in the universe. i quite literally made up of awfully small particles. I simply don't carry enough weight in the universe to command the kind of gravity to hold the world together by my needs and my wants. And yet, that's exactly what we try to do. We aren't the center of the universe. And if we were the center of the universe, we do not carry enough gravity, enough weight, and enough glory to hold the universe together. No wonder our worlds are spinning out of control. What if I took my stand, not in myself, What if I took my stand on the ground of the creator himself? What if I pitched my tent, not on my own self-importance, but on the glory and the purposes of the God as he has revealed himself? I would find that the whole of the universe is revolving around him. And the whole of the universe is fixed upon him. And I am grounded to him. And if I take all of this together with the gospel, that God's word reveals, it really reveals a fourth thing to us, something we've considered a great deal lately, that the story of God lifts our story out of idolatry. And really, that's the implication of all of what we've considered so far. Romans chapter 1 was clear. Our default nature is to reject both the creator and the redeemer. We reject God's eternal power and his divine nature, and we exalt our fleshly appetites, and we worship the creature rather than the creator. Like, that's our story. It's a good summary of myself on my own. We may or may not have tiny altars and carved images, but we do treat the things that are created as though they were ultimate things that ought to satisfy, lifting us out of the mundane, giving us some groundedness for our anxiety. We treat money and possessions and jobs and health and education and families and so on as if they were the most real thing, but all of these have a beginning. Not one of those things can you say, in the beginning, my career. In the beginning, my family. No. In the beginning, God. All of these things have a beginning, and they will all pass away on their own. The second we serve them with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, they become our gods, a God of our own imagination, and we're not living in reality anymore. But God has revealed himself, and he's called us to put away idolatry and to follow him in faith. So our sinful, idolatrous ways may be forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ and our life can be united with him in his divine glory to find new life in Jesus. The call this morning is to lay down all of the striving and submit by faith to reality in the beginning God. The Lord is God. The Lord alone, and you can know him. You can begin to make sense of your life because your story is caught up in a greater story, his. So this morning, I do call you to give attention in the coming weeks to the story of God, and as we read together, and as we listen to the scriptures together in the history of redemption, and I call you this morning not just to wait until you've heard more, but this morning, to believe. That this morning, what you would, that you would believe what you've already heard. That the Lord makes sense of your life. The only way to be rightly oriented is to be submitted to His glory, His design, His rule, and His grace. Heavenly Father, this is not our default nature. We need Your interrupting, intervening grace. I pray, Lord, that you would do that today, every life, that you would interrupt us by this simple, confronting reality that you alone are God. And this clear implication, we are not. Would you begin there, Lord? In every one of our hearts, and particularly in the heart that yet is to confess you, Can we at least confess this? You alone are God. Pray, Lord, that we would come to know the grace of Jesus Christ by which we can be reconciled to our God, to our Creator and our Redeemer. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this divine work in human souls today. In the name of Jesus, amen.